So as, of, so as of right now, out of the 389 students that are in the course, 66 of you have, have filled the survey, so I thank you very much. Uh, I hope, hopefully that'll be, let, let me reload this. Still 66, okay. So if you haven't filled it in, please fill it in. It's helpful to me, it's helpful to York. We appreciate it. Um, it's anonymous, you don't have to worry about, you can say bad things, we don't, I don't know who said them. And uh, I don't even get to see it until uh, I don't even get to see them until January. So um, sixty-nine. Not sure why there's two. Sixty-nine now. Great. Awesome. A couple more. Okay, uh, so a couple of reminders that, uh, again, to, to do, please do the course evaluation if you haven't yet. And this is the last class. This is the last lecture. Uh, we're going to have a review on Thursday. Uh, typically, the way we do that is people come to class. I go around the room, and I ask people to give me a question that they have. Um, one question per person at first, at least, so that we can try to get everyone to ask a question if they need to. It can be in any of the material throughout the whole course. I tend to frown when people ask questions that start with, do we need to know? I don't like that, but you can try it if you want. Um, since we're going to be reviewing stuff in class on Thursday, I'm going to move the office hours to today. Okay, so we'll do office hours after this class. We're not going to do review on Thursday in class and then review again in office hours. But I will set up an online office hours this week, and then there will be more online office hours between now and the final exam. Okay, so last class. Uh, so we're going to put a few things together this class. Uh, we've talked about in this last section of the course this idea of various metabolic pathways. We've talked about some energetics and metabolism of glucose, and then fatty acids, and um, amino acids. So we're going to basically, in a way, try to put a little bit of this together. You know, one thing to bear in mind is that these pathways we've been talking about, they don't happen in isolation. They're all happening kind of in competition with one another. And the cell is going to bias which pathway is happening based on what the cell needs at that particular time. And that's a lot of what, I mean, a lot of the pathways have been worked out. People don't really worry or wonder about how you make urea anymore. That's been done. So a lot of the modern biology that's happening in the labs now is how does the cell coordinate it? How does the cell control? How does it know what to do at a given moment in time? Okay. And so, um, and so there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in my group and other groups that has to do more with that. Uh, and then maybe cell-specific, right? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the liver today. A lot of stuff that happens uh, in one particular cell will happen differently in a different cell. And, and so what happens in the liver is often special compared to what happens in other organs. The point of this slide is to just kind of highlight a few important branch points. Okay, there's glucose 6-phosphate. Glucose 6-phosphate can go, and we talked a little bit about how this enzyme that does this is, is highly regulated. Um, glucose 6-phosphate can go many ways, right? It can go through 
glycolysis and then into Krebs cycle. It can go back up to make glycogen stores. It can go into pentose phosphate pathway to make things like nucleotides. You've got pyruvate. Uh, the decision to go from pyruvate to acetyl-CoA will depend on whether you're burning for Krebs cycle or making fats, or the decision to go from pyruvate to oxaloacetate will determine whether you're going back up through gluconeogenesis. Acetyl-CoA is another branch point. You can put that through citric acid cycle to burn sugars to make ATP, or you, that's if, you're, if you need energy, if you've got an excess of energy, you can back, put, up through, put that up through fatty acid synthesis, through fatty acid synthase to make fats. You can also, we're going to talk about today, make ketone bodies from acetyl-CoA. We haven't covered that yet, but we will today. And then you got oxaloacetate. We talked a little bit about that. This is part of Krebs cycle, but it's also part of gluconeogenesis. And it's also, you can aminate oxaloacetate to make aspartic acid. So just a few highlighted metabolites that kind of represent decision points for the cell. So how do we control what cell does what under each condition? This is often controlled by hormones, okay? So you're probably going to cover this more in depth in a course like physiology. Um, we don't cover it so much in this course, but we'll cover a couple and a couple of concepts. Um, there's various types of um, signaling that occurs. You've got autocrine signaling, uh, endocrine signaling, paracrine signaling, signaling. These terms refer to um, where is the effect being, where is the effect happening compared to where the hormone was generated? So, for example, neuronal signaling, you've got a nerve impulse that transmits a signal along an axon, and then you've got these junctions between uh, a muscle or an intestinal wall or who knows what. The hormone or the neurotransmitter is secreted from the end of the nerve, and it's basically in the adjacent cell a signal is transmitted, so we would call this something like paracrine signaling. The signaling distance is very close. On the other hand, you've got these organs like the pancreas or uh, various um, the pituitary, different glands that secrete hormones, and the place of action that the hormone uh, elicits a change is not next to, say, the pancreas. So the pancreas is going to secrete things like insulin or glucagon, in response to glucose levels, and that's going to have a pervasive effect throughout the whole body. Okay? So we've got this, this example of neuronal signaling, which occurs over the distance of a few micrometers, but endocrine signaling, like what we talked about with the pancreas, can occur over the whole body. How do hormones elicit their effects? Well, there's kind of two different concepts you want to get across here. The fastest way to elicit effect, to elicit an effect on a cell, is to change the activity or the, change the, the activity of a protein or an enzyme that's already there. Okay? So we already talked about some examples of this, right? So we talked about, you can imagine a, a hormone like glucagon, which is a, a cell star, a, a starvation type hormone, will bind to a receptor on a cell, activate something like uh, PKA or uh, adenylate cyclase, these enzymes that take that signal, transmit it inside the cell, and make a second messenger look like cyclic AMP. Well, we already talked about cyclic AMP in black operon. We talked about uh, there are other, certainly, um, enzymes that bind cyclic AMP, and it'll change the activity of that enzyme very quickly. 
And so you can imagine that this is a very rapid way to change the activity of, of enzymes or proteins that are already in the cell to elicit a physiological response in response to a hormone that's sensed outside the cell. Okay. So that's very quick. That's the point of that one. Altered activity of a pre-existing enzyme. On the other hand, a signaling molecule like cyclic AMP or other types of hormone receptors that do not interact with a receptor on the cell surface, they directly go into the cell and they interact with proteins that are going to directly bind the DNA. So, so we call them nuclear receptors. Steroid, steroid hormone, thyroid hormone are classic examples of this. The hormone's gonna bind to, say, a DNA transcription factor, activate that transcription factor, and now that transcription factor is gonna bind to the DNA. And this is going to elicit a response that is not quite so quickly manifested. You're gonna have to make a messenger RNA from this altered transcription, that messenger RNA is going to be translated into a new protein. So there's a, there's a lag there. There's a time that has to happen between receipt or the hormone, receipt of that signal, and propagation of the, of, of the event downstream of that. You've got to make a new gene. You've got to translate it. And so you're going to alter the amount of, you're going to alter the protein balance in the cell. And that's also going to have an effect. Okay? So it's not as quick. But now you've got this new complement of intracellular proteins that are going to operate under kind of a different program than the complement of intracellular proteins you had before. And so that may be required for a prolonged response. So if you're in a prolonged period of starvation, it may be better to kind of completely change the way that cell is metabolizing things, and you may not want to just rely on changing the activity of the enzymes that are already there. You want to bring new proteins online, and you want to shut down proteins that might be considered wasteful in a situation like starvation. Does that make sense? So two nice reciprocal hormones that kind of do opposite things. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about insulin, and I think people are already relatively familiar with insulin. The job of insulin it's secreted by the pancreas in response to increase in blood sugar levels. And the idea of insulin is to bind to cells, to tell cells to take glucose into the cells. Right? So people who are diabetic, um, type 1 diabetics at least, they have a deficiency of insulin production. And so what happens is you've got a lot of blood glucose in the bloodstream, which is not being taken into the cells. Right? That's a problem. Um, so you're going to have insulin that sti uh, stimulates entry of glucose into the muscles, adipose cells. Uh, it will stimulate glycogen synthesis and glycolysis in the liver. So you want to store that glycogen. You want to store that glucose as glycogen. You also want to do glycolysis not necessarily for the purpose of um, burning the glucose into energy. You want to, that's what's happening in the liver. You want to do glycolysis in the liver to make fats. Okay? So you have less fatty acid catabolism and more fatty acid synthesis. The opposite kind of insulin is glucagon. This is your signal for your starved state. Okay? You want to deplete your uh, glycogen stores. One of the things that's going to come up a little bit in this class is this idea that the body bends over backwards to keep glucose levels constant in the bloodstream. Because the primary consideration or, or the most urgent need that the body wants to try to keep track of is to keep blood glucose levels constant for the brain. The brain is, if, you, if, if you've got a 
a pro if you've got a problem that's going to be a problem in the in this time course of minutes, it's usually brain function. So, um, and the brain, as we're going to cover, the brain has a limited number of things it can use to run. Uh, the brain does not run on fatty acids. And so it's really important to keep blood glucose. It runs on glucose. It runs on something else. We'll talk about that. The brain runs on glucose. So when you're sugar starved, you're probably not thinking so hot. And so the body actually goes to considerable effort to keep blood glucose levels at, this, at the same level. So what's going to happen is under a starvation response, you're going to uh, break down glycogen. These are basically glucose stores that you can put quickly right back into glucose. And you're going to be uh, promoting gluconeogenesis in the liver, right? You're going to be basically trying to figure out ways to take your stores of, of um, energy in the cell and, and put that back up through gluconeogenesis. Glucagon, we already talked, I talked about a little bit, this, a little bit about this already. You've got this enzyme called adenylate cyclase. This enzyme will be activated in response to glucagon to take ATP and turn it into cyclic AMP. And this is your intracellular. Glucagon is the hormone that's going around your bloodstream. Cyclic AMP is your intracellular messenger molecule that signals, okay, not the best time to divide like crazy. Probably a good time to hunker down and hibernate or take a breather. Another hormone that's semi-related, okay, is this idea of uh, epinephrine. We're not really going to talk about epinephrine, but it's this kind of fight-or-flight hormone. It's this hormone that kind of excites you. You just, someone, my daughter really thinks it's fun right now to jump out from behind corners and startle me. So when she does that, I'm sure my epinephrine levels jump, and then I, uh, my cyclic AMP levels jump up in my muscle cells. That's going to enhance my glycogen breakdown, so I've got lots of energy ready to book. Okay, so we already talked a little bit about insulin, and this gets back a little bit of what we talked about in section one, this idea of various um, post-translational modifications. Uh, we talked about, when people typically think about post-translational modifications, they think about phosphorylations, ubiquitylations, but this is also a form of post-translational modification. We talked about protein cleavage, cutting up a protein, and insulin is a classic example of this, right? So this is the way insulin is synthesized by the ribosome, okay, as pre-pro-insulin. It's got a signal sequence. We already talked about that in section one. That means that it's going to emerge from the ribosome and the ribosome is going to stall. It's going to be recognized by this SRP particle, which is going to bind to the signal sequence and bring insulin, the insulin translating ribosome, to the endoplasmic reticulum membrane. It's going to dock with the membrane. That signal, as it docks, that's going to be the signal for SRP to dissociate, and the protein is now going to, the translation of it's going to continue, and the protein is going to be translated into the lumen of the ER. Um, ER, Golgi, these types of things are probably not so, as, they're not as familiar to you are, I'm sure they're familiar to you, but they're going to become more familiar to you if and when you take 2021. That's a bit more of a cell biology course, but we'll leave that for cell bio, for 2021. So this is going to be translocated into the lumen of the ER. Um, it's synthesized as a protein with all these cysteines in it, right, these SHs. As a general rule, uh, I'm not sure we've covered this already, but we'll certainly cover it next, class, next course. Um, so one question you may be wondering is, 
does a protein look like this, with its typically look like this, with its disulfide bonds reduced, or does it look like this, with its disulfide bonds oxidized, meaning formed? Typically, cytoplasmic proteins look like this. The cytoplasm is considered to be a uh, reducing environment. There's lots of reducing agents in, in the cytoplasm. And so as a result, disulfide bonds tend not to form for cytoplasmic proteins. However, the lumen of the ER and the Golgi and the extracellular environment of the cell, remember insulin is going to be secreted, right? Um, that's considered an oxidizing environment. And so typically ER proteins, Golgi proteins, and extracellular proteins have disulfide bonds, whereas cytoplasmic ones tend not to have disulfide bonds. Okay. So as this is put into the ER, we talked about this already, the signal sequence is going to come off. As the signal sequence comes off, pre-proinsulin becomes proinsulin. Okay, that's the term we use for this species of insulin. The disulfide bonds will form in the ER. Finally, another peptidase will come along and cleave off this, what we call the C-peptide. And this is the mature form of insulin. This is the bit that's then secreted into the extracellular matrix, meaning the blood. Okay. So now this will be floating around in the bloodstream in response to a glucose meal. Or a meal or, or high glucose. So one thing we're going to talk a little bit about is this idea of how various organs do different things. Right? We just talked a little bit about the pancreas. This is our organ that is secreting insulin and glucagon. It's basically your glucose sensor. Right? The one that we're going to spend most of our time talking about now is the liver. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other important organs. There are. But I think that's, we're just trying to give you a flavor for that in this class. Um, and we're trying to, uh, you know, you're probably going to cover the metabolic function of other organs in other courses that are a little bit more dedica dedicated to that. But because what the liver does relates directly to what we've already been talking about, we're going to focus a little bit more on that. So we're going to talk about various metabolic pathways that happen in the liver. We've already talked about these to a certain extent, but we're just going to kind of break it down a little bit here. We'll talk about sugars and amino acids primarily. So what's happening with glucose in the liver? Right? Well, it depends on kind of what's happening in, the, in terms of, this, in terms of the, the organism. Is, is it starving? Is it, did you just eat? So what will happen in the liver that's generally kind of specific to the liver, is you're going to have glucose 6-phosphate, right? Um, that's going to form in the liver in response to sugars coming into the liver. And that can be the form of glucose, fructose, mannose, galactose. These are going to come in from the small intestine. These non-glucose sugars are going to be converted into glucose and then are going to be converted into glucose 6-phosphate, okay? And then, basically, what happens from here depends on what is happening in terms of in terms of what's happening in the body, right? If glucose levels in the blood are low, well then the liver is going to just secrete glucose into the bloodstream, okay? To try to keep glucose levels high, right? But if glucose levels are fine and there's no need to put more glucose into the bloodstream, well then there's other things we can do with that glucose, right? We can take glucose 6-phosphate and we can synthesize liver glycogen. That's very helpful to have as a very rapid Glycogen is very easily converted into glucose without too many steps in between it. So this is just basically a storage form of glucose such that if blood glucose levels drop 
in the kind of the short term, well, you've got this glycogen store in the liver that can kind of quickly be mobilized to try to stabilize that. Okay. If you've made all the glycogen you need, you don't really need to make any more, well, there's other things we can do with it. We can put that through glycolysis and Krebs cycle to make energy. You know, liver cells got to live, right? It's got to eat too, so it's going to need some energy also. Um, if it doesn't need energy, well, it can, through acetyl-CoA, right, we've talked about this, acetyl-CoA can be split off, and this is basically the substrate to make fats, and that's where fats are generally synthesized de novo, right? New fats are generally synthesized in the liver, and so you've got acetyl-CoA, which is going to be put into fatty acids. Remember, in, in humans, generally, we're going to be making palmitic acid, that 16-carbon one. And so those fatty acids will be put up in the triacylglycerols, and they are going to be, uh, we're going to talk about this, I think, in the next slide. Once you make triacylglycerols, these are going to be put into the blood in the context of these VLDLs. Right? These are these, this is the storage vehicle for bringing triacylglycerols to the body, and we'll talk about that again in a few slides. Or we can make, we talked about glucose 6-phosphate is also that which goes, we didn't cover pentose phosphate pathway, but if you need to make nucleotides, that's the pathway. Remember, you need a ribose for every nucleotide you make, right? Those also come from glucose 6-phosphate through a pathway that we didn't really talk about. Okay, so that's for glucose. What happens to amino acids in the liver? Well, uh, most straightforward thing would to make would be to make pro yeah. Did I say amino acids? No. Fatty acids. Right. Is there a priority? Um, probably. I mean, you know, all of these are going to have enzymes that are going to be, that are going to be, um, there's going to be feedback inhibition, right? So the enzymes that are shunting glucose 6-phosphate into pentose phosphate pathway, I expect those enzymes are going to be feedback inhibited by things like ATP. If ATP levels are very high, then you're probably going to, I mean, there's, now, that might also inhibit fatty acid synthesis. Do you know what I mean? Each enzyme in each pathway is going to have its own type of feedback inhibition such that you're not going to be moving things. I expect when everyone's happy, you're going to be using it to make fats. Then you just get big. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, muscles also have glycogen stores, to my understanding. So they do. And so by quickly, so cyclic AMP is a glycogen uh, breakdown. That's one of the things that cyclic AMP does. It breaks down glycogen. And so by epinephrine turning on cyclic AMP, it's not necessarily that you're starving, but all of a sudden those glycogen stores and the associated glucose become very quickly available to, to make lots of ATP so you can run. And also in the heart, it's going to make your heart go, you know, it's going to, you have lots of energy to kind of. 
Okay, so we've got our amino acids in the liver. We can use them, obviously, to make liver proteins. We can also use them to make plasma proteins. Plasma is the part of your blood that's not the red blood cells, right? So if you take, excuse me, your red or your white blood cells. So if you take blood and you put it in a low-speed centrifuge, then the red and the white blood cells will precipitate, right? And you're going to have a supernatant, a clear supernatant. And that supernatant is not, there's no cells in it, but it's, that doesn't mean it's empty. That supernatant is full of proteins that are naturally floating around in your bloodstream. Albumin's a classic one. It's basically a carrier protein. Uh, so basically, these proteins that are floating around in what we call the kind of the non-cellular phase of blood, the plasma, most of those proteins are, are made in the liver. Okay? So the liver is going to make those plasma proteins and excrete them into the bloodstream. There can be amino acids that are secreted directly into the blood. We already talked about some amino acids that float around in the bloodstream as, for various purposes. We talked about pyruvate being moved between muscles and the liver. Sorry, alanine. We talked about alanine being moved between muscles and the liver. We talked about glutamine moving around the bloodstream as a way to shuttle nitrogen. Okay, so there are various uh, amino acids that can go around through the blood, and, and that can come from the liver also. Uh, what else can we do? We can a lot of amino acids, as we talked about last class, these, these kind of biogenic amines, there's various things like hormones, nucleotides, porphyrins. Uh, we didn't talk about the pathways that make the nucleotide bases, but um, like you know, guanine and cytosine and adenine, these bases, some of the nitrogens and carbons from in those nucleotides come from amino acids. We, again, we didn't talk about that so much. Maybe in an advanced biochemistry course, you might get into that. But you're going to need amino acids to make things like that also. And we also talked about how amino acids like glutamine and other forms, aspartic acid, uh, glutamic acid, these all feed into basically urea cycle to excrete excess nitrogen as urea. Okay. Once you do that, once you split off this nitrogen from these amino acids, Again, as we talked about last class, you're going to be left with a carbon skeleton that can do any number of things. Um, we talked a lot about how one of the very important functions of the liver is to keep glucose levels constant. Well, that's one way you can do that. You can take pyruvate and move it into gluconeogenesis through oxaloacetate. That will get glucose levels back up, and you can try to keep your blood glucose levels constant that way. On the other hand, you can take that carbon skeleton and put it through citric acid cycle, you can make fatty acids out of it, you can do lots of things with it. So, you know, there's the, there's the things that kind of happen in the liver that happen with the nitrogen, right? Urea or synthesis of proteins, that type of thing. There's also that which happens with the remaining carbon skeleton, which we talked a little bit about last class also. Right. I, I believe that, 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 yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, that makes sense to me, yes. So I'm going to tentatively say yes. So it, the cell will use its glycogen stores first to try to keep blood glucose levels up before, or at least the liver will use. To, my understanding is glycogen in the muscle is used for, by the muscle. The glycogen in the liver is used to try to keep the blood glucose levels up. And as that's depleted, 
we revert to other things to try and keep blood glucose levels up. Things like gluconeogenesis. There's a problem with gluconeogenesis, though. For what's that? We'll get to that. So the problem is that most of your body's energy reserves are stored as fat. But you can't use fat to make glucose. You can use amino acids, right, like through pyruvate. But it's, diff it's, it's not easy to make um, glucose out of fats. So that's going to be a problem, which we'll talk about. You can get fat from sweets, but you can't get sweet from fats. That's the way it was taught to me. Um, this is called the Cori cycle. If you're in kin or you're in other physiology type courses, I expect this is well known to you. So you've got uh, your muscles that are trying to make lots of ATP very quickly. So it, the muscles will very quickly deplete their glycogen stores. Uh, as your muscle is really exerting, it becomes basically anaerobic, right? As you can't get oxygen to the muscle quickly enough uh, for you to be able to go into aerobic metabolism, so you start making lactate, okay? Uh, as lactate accumulates, you want to basically then metabolize that back into glucose. You don't want to lose that, right? So what's going to happen is that lactate is going to be transferred to the um, liver, Lactate can then be back metabolized back into glucose, right, through gluconeogenesis. That glucose can then go back in the bloodstream as the exertion has waned, right, as you're not, as you've taken a breather, you want to get that lactate out of the muscle, convert it back into glucose, and then replete the glycogen stores in the muscle. We call this cycle the Cori cycle. So this is basically kind of the schematic of what's happening in a well-fed liver, in a well-fed person in the liver, okay? So in a well-fed person, first, uh, you just had a meal, that's sensed by the pancreas, the pancreas secretes insulin, okay? So what's gonna happen? So, uh, so you've got glucose in the, in the intestines, you've got amino acids and fats that go through the blood vessels. Uh, the triacylglycerols that are, we talked about triacylglycerols that are taken up by the intestine, Right? These are going to be transported into the blood via chylomicrons. Right? Those are going to either go into the, uh, they're going to be metabolized by um, these enzymes that break the triacylglycerols down to fatty acids at the muscle for the muscle to burn fatty acids into ATP. Okay? So that will be used for exertion. The other option is to store those fatty acids. Those are brought as triacylglycerols to the liver, which are then packaged as VLDLs. So these um, uh, triacylglycerols that go from the intestine to the muscles uh, or from the intestine to the liver are these chylomicrons, but triacylglycerols that come out of the liver are packaged in these other things called very low-density lipoproteins. And they will be transported to the adipose tissue for storage. Uh, the glucose that you take in, well, what can you do with that? You can take the glucose and obviously you want to use some of that to keep the brain happy. The glucose, the, the preferred fuel of the brain is glucose. Uh, as you, if you've got excess glucose, if blood level glucose is fine, then you want to then, you've, the, the liver has a particular 
glycogen storehouse of glucose. You want to make sure that that's topped up because that's what's going to let you respond to short-term glucose drop levels, drops in, gly in glucose levels. If that's also topped up, well then you're, your times are good. You should probably bank some of that glucose and you're going to move that through glucose to pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. Some of that's going to be used to run the, the liver. Some of that is also going to be used through fatty acid synthase to make triacylglycerols, which are also going to go to the adipose tissue. That's kind of the idea of what's going to be happening in the liver when times are good. For the fasting liver, times aren't so good, right? The pancreas senses a drop in blood glucose levels, right? So it's going to secret this hormone glucagon. First thing that's going to happen is your glycogen stores are going to be, so as the blood glucose levels are dropping, the brain is not happy, right? Its, its favorite fuel is, is going down. There's less of that in the blood than it would like. The easiest way to get blood glucose levels back up again is to take that glycogen store and put that into glucose, okay? So you're going to take your glycogen, put that into glucose 6-phosphate, which is then quickly metabolized back into glucose, and that's primarily going to be used to run the brain, okay? Because, like I said, the, glucose, the, the brain is really happiest with that, okay? Uh, fasting, you can also imagine that fasting is not very good. I mean, if you're starving, eventually this leads to what we would call wasting, right? The muscles will start breaking down. We talked about how you can go from proteins into uh, making glucose through gluconeogenesis. You've got proteins, which will be converted to amino acids. Amino acids, through their various carbon skeletons, can be broken down, basically funneled into pyruvate. Pyruvate goes through oxaloacetate into gluconeogenesis. So you can also get glucose 6-phosphate levels higher, and then glucose, that glucose, that resulting glucose can go to the brain. What you really want to do is, uh, so oxaloacetate levels will be, will be very low in this situation, right? So basically, because whatever oxaloacetate you make is being used to go up through gluconeogenesis, right, you're not really going to be, uh, your, 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 your oxaloacetate levels will be lower than they already are, okay? Um, so what en ends up happening is uh, you want to mobilize these, these fat stores that you've stored in your adipose tissue, right? So those are going to be sent back to the uh, liver, okay? The fatty acids that go into the liver are generally not going to be going in a citric acid cycle because oxaloacetate levels are so low, okay? Some will, obviously. You're not going to have, the, 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 the liver has to run on ATP, right? But generally, the, it's going to be the bare minimum, right? What, what the what the body is doing, it's panicking because the glucose levels are so low and the brain is going to have a problem in a second. So what the liver's priority now is to get another fuel available for the brain to not fall over. And so what happens is the fatty acids are converted into a new thing, which we call ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are the other fuel that the brain can run on, which we'll talk about in a little while. So basically your triacylglycerols, your, 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 fatty, your, your fat tissues, those are sent through the liver, which are synthesized into ketone bodies, and those ketone bodies are then put into the bloodstream. They can be metabolized by the muscle, or they can be metabolized by the brain. So this is a thing we haven't talked about yet, these ketone bodies. 
But that's kind of an idea of kind of how the liver is doing different things. And, and the degree to which it's doing the different things depends on how serious the fasting is, right? If, you, if you're fasting for a day because, I don't know, uh, well, then that's going to be different than if you're starving for weeks. Okay? Uh, there's a typo here. Uh, Acetyl-CoA converted the ketone bodies to keep the brain. I didn't, it's not, the brain is unmuscle. It's not a muscle. The brain is not a muscle. It's supposed to be and. Keep the brain and muscle fueled. So this is kind of what I've been talking about, right? So the brain, unlike muscles, it doesn't run on fatty acids. Okay. It runs on glucose. That's what it would like to run on. And it runs on these ketone bodies. So this is kind of what I was trying to get across. There's, this, there's a lot of effort to keep blood glucose levels constant and normal. But sometimes that doesn't happen, right? So there, we have to take extreme measures. So under um, prolonged periods of fasting or stress or a low-carb diet, what we're going to do is we're break down fatty acids into acetyl-CoA. That gets a lot of acetyl-CoA but very little glucose. The problem, the problem is that it's, it's very difficult to get acetyl-CoA up through gluconeogenesis. And um, the brain can't metabolize acetyl-CoA. So the liver makes these ketone bodies from acetyl-CoA, which can be metabolized by the brain. The two um, ketone bodies that generally are the ones that are used by the brain is acetoacetate and um, beta-hydroxybutyrate, these two guys. At a small level, at a low level, you also make acetone. So you guys know acetone? This is uh, nail polish remover. Okay. That smell. So sometimes you'll people who are in a bad way. Um, acetone is, 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 is produced as a side product of these. The enzymes that make ketone bodies primarily make these two things. But there's also an enzyme that makes a low amount of this, acetone. And uh, you can't metabolize acetone. It's actually quite toxic. Uh, the, the body gives, gets rid of the acetone through the breath. So people who are in a bad way or are starving in a serious way You'll, you can sometimes smell that on their breath, and that's, that's not good. So here's the idea of how that happens. Um, to make ketone bodies, we start with two acetyl-CoAs. Okay, so you, if you recall, acetyl-CoA is a, a two-carbon compound. We're going to join them together with this thiolase enzyme. It's going to split off one of the CoAs, and you've gone from a two two-carbon compounds into one four-carbon compound. So this acetoacetyl-CoA. This four-carbon acetoacetyl-CoA will become a six-carbon beta-hydroxy-beta-methylgutyryl-CoA, which we abbreviate. Nobody says that. We just call it HMG-CoA. Okay. To do that, we brought in a third acetyl-CoA. Okay. We split off one of the two acetyl-CoAs we started with. Now we've got a six-carbon compound that also has so we've gone from two two-carbon compounds to a four-carbon compound. We've brought in a third acetyl-CoA now. We've got a six-carbon compound. We split off that end acetyl-CoA. So we regenerate an acetyl-CoA, right? So that takes off two carbons and the CoA group to generate acetoacetate, which is a four-carbon compound that does not have a CoA on it. So to like kind of do the math, we started with two acetyl-CoAs up here. We brought in a third acetyl-CoA here. 
We split off an acetyl-CoA, so we needed three, but we got back one. So the net acetyl-CoA that's used up to make one acetoacetate is two. Right? If you don't have three, you won't make it, but you get one back. Okay? The net is two, but you kind of need three. Now acetoacetate can be converted into acetone. This is the minor reaction. Or it can be converted into this beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is kind of the other fuel. These are the two fuels that the brain can run on, these ketone bodies. How does that happen? Okay, so here's this catalysis of ketone bodies. Let's say that these ketone bodies have been delivered to the brain. If it's beta-hydroxybutyrate, that, that gets converted back. If it's acetoacetate, we start here, right? So we start with acetoacetate here and beta-hydroxybutyrate. If it's acetoacetate, we start from here. If it's beta-hydroxybutyrate, we back convert that into acetoacetate. So it funnels into acetoacetate. We use a succinyl-CoA, all right? And the succinyl-CoA gets converted into succinate. We take the CoA from succinyl-CoA and we put it on acetoacetate to make acetoacetyl-CoA. We bring in another coenzyme A and we regenerate two acetyl-CoAs. So uh, we started with two acetyl-CoAs when we were making ketone bodies, right? They were delivered to the brain as, as ketone bodies. As they get to the brain, they're broken back down into two acetyl-CoAs again, which are then subsequently used for the brain to run on. Yeah, presumably these acetyl-CoAs can then go into Krebs cycle, citric acid cycle, to make ATP. So this is a succinyl-CoA requiring reaction, okay, the catalysis of ketone bodies. So this talks a little bit of what we've already talked about, these kind of responses to stressful conditions. Uh, after you eat, normally, your blood glucose level will go up. Con concomitantly, your insulin levels will go up. Because blood glucose levels are high, uh, muscles and liver will synthesize glycogen, make sure the glycogen stores are full. Uh, and then once those are full, then we're also going to synthesize fatty acids in the liver. And if you ate a lot of food, then, then that's going to be stored in your adipose tissue. Having said that, after you've eaten, Many hours after you've eaten, your insulin levels are going to drop, your liver is going to, glucagon levels will go up, your liver is going to break down the glycogen it has to keep blood glucose levels up, you're going to get this basically release of fatty acids into the bloodstream, uh, your body is going to start running on, those parts of your body that can run on fatty acids, like your muscle, are going to run on fatty acids, uh, you're going to have less glucose entry into the muscle, you want to get that glucose into the brain, okay? Um, the liver is going to be trying to make glucose to keep the glucose levels up. And then as your ability to keep glucose levels high wanes, because you've kind of exhausted all the ways you can easily make it, you're going to get these ketone buddies starting to accumulate. That's basically kind of an idea of what's happening here. Uh, as you're, you know, you've got a certain blood glucose level, 
Uh, at zero days of starvation, you have not started starving yet. You've got a blood glucose level that's very happy. You're, uh, in red are the ketone bodies. They're going to be basically negligible. You're going to have free-floating fatty acids that are going to be lower. Okay? And then as you start starving, number one, the glucose levels are going to drop. And at some point, the body is going to start freaking out. It's going to start trying its best to keep those glucose levels high. It's going to first deplete all its glycogen stores. Eventually, you know, once the glycogen stores are gone, you still need blood glucose levels. It's going to start digesting you to, to keep those blood glucose levels high. And you can do that through amino acids, right? You can break down amino acids and through gluconeogenesis. To try and keep, to try to keep dealing with that, now you're going to see these concentrations of these um, ketone bodies gradually increase as starvation prolongs, right? So these are these ketone bodies that are basically starvation products. They start at very negligible levels, but they're going to go up and up and up. And I think probably once you get it in around here, you've got real problems. So this slide is just uh, kind of an attempt to try and um, give you some ideas as to uh, some of the things, some concepts as to what we've kind of been talking about. You're circulating fuels, right? You're circulating glucose, fatty acids between a normal weight man and an obese man. The glycogen stores, the glucose stores, they're almost identical, right? The ability of the body to store glucose as glycogen is limited. There's only so much glycogen the muscles and the liver can hold. Even though that is much more easily metabolized in the glucose to keep blood glucose levels high, there's only so much you can put in those tissues. Okay? So even though these two people have very different uh, kind of energy reserves, the glucose reserves and the glycogen reserves are very similar. Okay? The big difference is, obviously, you guys already know this, the uh, amount of energy stored in the adipose tissue the fat tissue, okay? You're going to have on the order of 140 kcals in a 70 kilogram man stored as fat, but on the order in an, in an obese man, you're going to have on the order of 750 kcals stored as fat, you know? This comes with its own um, health-related issues, but one health-related issue that's going to be less of an issue for the obese person is survival over the course of a starvation, right? Obviously, uh, the person who's got the large fat stores is going to survive longer during starvation. That makes sense? We're done. Yay. Uh, so good luck on the final. I also teach 3130. It's, it's fun. So if you're interested, then I hope you see you there. And uh, what's that? That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so keep an eye out uh, for the uh, online office hours if you're interested. And again, next class, we'll still be here, but it'll just be review. Okay, so see you around.